Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, but now you're actually tuned into our finance review series, and uh, we've gotten some good feedback so far, so we're just going to continue doing it. In this one, we're actually going to talk about the physician's loan if you're actually going to look to buy a house. I actually used this loan to buy my house when I first started residency uh, some years ago. Well, now I'm done with residency, but when I first started, I actually used this loan, and I wish I learned a little bit more about it, but a great loan. And we have Doug Crusay, who is going to talk to us a little bit more about it today. He is actually a mortgage broker. He actually does a segment on the Financial Residency Podcast called the Mortgage Minute. He is has been doing physician mortgages since 1999. Again, he specializes in doing physician loans nationwide. His wife is actually a doctor. And he actually wrote a book that you all can get uh, for free about buying houses as a physician. So again, you can get a free copy. So if you click the link in the description, that'll get you to the website and you can go fill out your information, get a free copy of that book. But again, so today we dive deeply into the physician loans. We talk about what it is, what are the advantages, what are the disadvantages, should you go as a specific bank? We really dive deeply into the physician's loan, what it is, who qualifies for it, and et cetera. So without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Doug, welcome to the uh, Nailed It Ortho podcast. So happy to have you on and uh, welcome to the podcast. Wendell, thanks for having me on. And, and this is a little bit more of our kind of our finance series. And now we're going to, at least today, we're going to kind of talk about the physician's loan, uh, which I, yeah, I briefly mentioned to you before we started. It's something that I actually used when I was first started residency, graduating from medical school. I, I found out about it as a fourth year medical student. And uh, I'm sure you're, you're going to shed a lot of knowledge onto us and talking about it. And I guess kind of just jumping right in, what is we like what is a physician's loan for those of us that, you know, haven't been around, haven't bought houses before, really been in the real estate side of things besides just renting apartments, you know, say we got a fourth year student or even residents that are about to graduate and they have no idea what this is. So what is a physician's loan? I'm glad you asked because a lot of doctors it amazes me honestly how many people are aware of them and it a theme because there's a lot of lenders out there that are also not aware of them. And then they get a physician into a loan that's nowhere near as beneficial. So a physician loan is actually still a conventional loan product. You know, the other, what's not a conventional loan is a BA loan or an FHA or something like that. But a lot of people are expecting physician loans to be something different, but it's still your typical conventional loan. It just comes with added perks and different caveats of what will and won't work with it. So three main things that a physician loan apart from other loans. One, especially when you get into the higher dollar amounts, like in the jumbo territory, low to no down payment. That's just not an option for non-physicians. You know, most jumbo loans, if you're over the conforming limit, currently sits at 726200 Anything over that, bare minimum is 10% down, but you get very much over that, like say over a million, you're looking at 20% down for a Kimbolo, where a physician can still get all the way up to a million with no money down. The next big thing that really sets it apart is no PMI. So they have got 800 credit, really nice perk, but something that's got 80 credit, it's an incredible difference. I mean, I'll go over that with you a little more. 
later in detail. And then the third big thing that sets it apart is typically, you know, most people go out and get a mortgage. They have to prove income and they're showing pace of W2's work history. But this is, well, actually, most of us are up to 90 days now. There's still a few that are 60 and a handful I've heard of doing 120 days. Let you close just an employment contract, haven't even started the job and use that future wage. So that's really in a nutshell what the business around is. And start before, I mean, close before the job starts, no PMI, and then no down payment or very low down payment by comparison. And so for those of us that, that don't necessarily know some of the, the terminology, can you kind of explain what is PMI? So PMI stands for private mortgage insurance, and it is strictly for the bank's benefit. And essentially what it boils down to is you take a loan with 20% down, you don't need PMI because the bank sees that you've got 20% equity, so it mitigates their risk. If the borrower stops paying and the house gets sold at the courthouse death, fire sale, whatever the case, then the bank's probably going to recover their money because you've got 20% down payment. PMI is essentially the bank hiring a third-party insurer to take on part of the risk. So a 95% or 100% loan, when it has, well, let's say a 95%, when it has PMI, 30% coverage, and what that means is the borrower's got 5% in the transaction, a third party, not the bank, is going to cover the next 30% of loss. So when the bank makes a loan at 95% with PMI, they're actually only on the hook for 65%. So in theory, I mean, not in theory, I guess in reality, a 95% loan with PMI is a less risky loan to the bank than a 20% download is. And in me as the, the borrower or the person that's buying, you know, the house, I would have to pay that PMI, correct? So that would be... Would that just be a percentage of the actual, you know, of the the house itself, or you know, is a fixed price, or just like a yearly thing that you have to pay? So PMI comes in many forms, and it's very variable based on credit score. So the many forms would be there's, and I'll get into this a little bit more too, because there are lenders out there that present themselves as offering a doctor loan. They don't really have one, and this is what they're doing. There's a lump sum lender paid PMI. So that's one option. You can, let's just take a $100,000 month as an example. If the PMI was going to be $80 a month monthly, there's also an option just to pay a one-time upfront fee. And the one-time upfront fee can be the borrower paid or lender paid. So when the lender pays it, it could look and feel like a doctor loan to the person getting the loan because and borrowing 5% down, I'm not paying PMI. But in reality, if the lender's paying it behind the scenes, then they're having to charge you a higher weight to be able to afford to do that. So lender, PMI, lump sum, borrower paid PMI, lump sum. There's the typical, this is probably 90% of PMI is borrower paid monthly. But then there's also a hybrid, which is what FHA works on and not really utilize much on conventional, but there is an option to pay like half of it up front and then part monthly. And then the monthly it's, you know, more palatable or it's not a huge payment. But what I was getting at a minute ago at PMI, a person with 800 credit score versus, I mean, we'll do hundred percent with our doctor loan down to 680, but mm-hmm. if somebody was to pay PMI with a 680 credit score, 
they're probably paying three, if not four times the monthly rate PMI of somebody with 800 credit score. So while the interest rate on mortgages doesn't really fluctuate as much as you might expect on a 680 versus an 800, you know, maybe you're going to see a half a point difference in rate. The PMI might be four times as much. And, you know, that can be substantial. I mean, you're talking $700 PMI payments. I've seen on somebody borrowing a million dollars with the jump of phone that isn't a doctor and low down payment. And so how, I guess, how much does, does credit matter for, you know, for attaining this physician's loan? If you have good credit versus bad credit, does it make, you know, some things, anything change? Well, like my bank currently, BMO Harris, we would probably vary between an 800 score and 740 score wouldn't even change the rate. It's probably just the difference in fees and minimal at that, maybe an eighth or a quarter point in fees. You go from a 740 to a 700, that's probably moving the needle at eight to a quarter point on the rate. And then drop all the way down to 680, which will still do 100% financing with LPMI for a physician. That probably moves the needle upwards of a half to even five eighths of a percent. But again, five-eighths of a percent there versus a non-doctor that was trying to buy something, they would five percent down. The PMI rate they would have to pay would probably be the equivalent of adding one and a half, if not more, to the rate. That's how expensive their PMI would be. Mm. And does it matter for, you know, because a lot of us, you know, physicians just to get through medical school and college have taken out a lot of loans, you know, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000 worth of loans. So does it matter if you have or I guess maybe what difference does it make if you have like $300,000 in loans versus say you got a scholarship and you may have $50,000 in loans. Does it, does, does it change anything as far as interest rates or, or can you even still get this kind of a loan? Yeah, the student loans, the amount you have won't make any difference other than how much you might qualify for because that is a big misconception on physician loans is most think that they exclude student loan payments and almost none of them do. I know of a few lenders that exclude payments for uh, residents. And, you know, you're almost excluded anyway if you, I mean, most of us will use an income based repayment calculation. So a lot of residents, even if they have 300,000 student loan debt, their income based repayment may only be 100 or $200 a month anyway. So that's essentially excluding it as opposed to counting a full amortized payment or a 1% payment. So most lenders will use either a, won't count any payment at all if it's deferred, but it has to be deferred for at least 12 months. Well, that hardly ever happens. I mean, you, you see, they keep kicking the can down the road here on the deferment now, but they never kick it out 12 months. So mm -hmm. that's never letting anybody come to me and says, well, my loans are in deferment. I think I know, but we still have to look at what they would be once you come out of deferment because you don't have a 12 month feature of no payment. So most of the time they're still looking at the income-based repayment, which is much lower. And then back to your other question, as far as rates go, some lenders don't change rates at all. I would say, I mean, like the last bank I was at, it was a smaller regional bank, probably one out of three banks don't even differentiate the pricing on a loan between say a 700 score and an 800 score. I think they should because somebody with an 800 score clearly has, you know, a better track record. But as a physician, a lot of credit is just utilized with student loan debt and 
lack of debt more than anything sometimes as well, that sometimes I see physicians with 700 credit that still have what I would consider a perfect profile. I mean, there's not a single lead on there. They just don't have the longevity of somebody with a long credit history or those student loans wrecked up with, unfortunately, nothing's paid on them yet. So there's not really anything to grade you on there. So, you know, you're going to probably be three to five years out before you can ever touch on an 800 credit score most of the time if you started out with student loans. And so I remember hearing about this and one of the main things I was thinking, I was like, all right, so what's the catch? Like, why, why are we getting this, this loan that, are, you know, you don't have to pay anything down. Like, I guess from the banking point of view, like, why does this type of loan exist? Like, you know what, what would make a bank say, okay, well, you're positional here. You don't have to put any money down. You know, we don't really care about your loans. Like what would, on the, from the bank side of the thing, what would make them want to kind of do this? Well, twofold. One, get a really good credit. A risk because I joke, you know, like I said, my wife's a doctor too. Mm-hmm. I joke all the time. I'm like, hey, if you lost your job, there's going to be five other offers by the end of the day. So yeah. the only doctors that are employed are the ones that are voluntarily employed because there's always an opportunity to have an income. So if banks back and look at their portfolio, the default rate on doctor loans is just as close to zero as it possibly could be. I mean, I don't. I don't even know if I've originated a doctor loan that defaulted. Mm. So really good credit risk is number one. And then number two, you know how grocery stores have lost leader items like milk or bread where they put them at the back of the store and get you in. Yeah. You pass everything and sell you everything else. That's the real kick. Most physicians lenders intend to portfolio and keep these loans and eventually they want to grow the relationship with the customer. And doctors, you know, have a little of high earning potential, though at some point they're going to need wealth management. Maybe they need a loan to start a practice. All of those things add up that they want an opportunity to, you know, have many relationships instead of just a single loan as a transactional. Mm, okay. Yeah. And that makes sense. And one of the things I was reading out there that I didn't know, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. Physicians can get this as well, but is this also like available to like physician assistants and dentists and like veterinarians? Like, is it only for doctors or is it available for like other people in the healthcare field? So it varies a lot by lenders. So there is no one size fits all in this because my bank is MDs, DOs, and DDS or DMD for the dentists as well. That's it. Mm. Bank out of that previous to this, we actually called it a professional loan and we gave equal terms to optometrist, pharmacist, and one other in Canada, but it was five different professions we gave that loan to. There's definitely some lenders out there that offer it the nurse practitioners and others, but not really seeing a lot of them offered as much on the same level. Like I've seen some of those that are 3% down or it's a little bit higher rate, you know, different things because Going back to my previous statement, doctors really are just a low-risk borrower. They all pay. All right. I just don't like, I don't want to compare an attorney to a doctor because in my opinion, (laughs) whenever that last bank, I helped them start that program and it wasn't my idea. They threw attorneys on there. It's like, doctors are just going to have employment opportunities. I've seen lots of attorneys that, you know, they lose 
a job or something, and then, you know, they're not going to be nearly as consistent throughout their career. There's always going to be attorneys that make millions of dollars, but there's mm-hmm. tons of attorneys too that, you know, they make a hundred or 120 where if you throw out the very bottom end of what physicians make as a rule, most of them are going to make significantly higher than the average attorney does. Right. And, and so, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of pros to, you know, the physicians laws. Are there any cons? Like are the, are the interest rates higher for a physician's loan compared to like the national average or I guess conventional loan or FHA loans, which you've mentioned, the interest rates around the same, are they typically higher? Like what, I guess, what's the con? It seems, you know, if there's something like some people listen, like, oh, this, this seems too good to be true. And again, it goes back to that same thing where they just, they're buying the business that they really want it. So no, as a, as a rule, and again, it's not one size fits all because it's not just one bank out here that offers these and every bank came up with their different idea of what they want their doctor loan to look like. While they're 80%, the same set of rules that other 20% differ. So, um, my doctor loan recently, we were doing it without the PMI and all this, and it was like an eighth better rate, but I think it was Thursday or Friday. I was spot checking our 15 year fixed doctor loan with a, say a 20% down payment. Don't really need a doctor loan at that point because you have a down payment. You're not going to pay PMI anyway. Maybe you still need it because you want to close before a job starts. But when I compared it, the doctor loan with a 15 year fix with 20% down was three quarters of a point better than what the general public was going to get for that same quote. So it just depends. Like normally if you said, Doug, what's your 30 year fix jumbo for somebody with 20% down versus a doctor with no money down, that's about the same. So I'm probably treating a doctor loan the same as somebody with 20% down, which 20% becomes a lower risk loan than a 5%. And I did just say that with the PMI, the bank is in a better position. But if I was comparing a 20 to a 5% down loan and PMI was not a factor, then of course the 20% a lower risk loan, but the doctor is getting the same rate on the 5% down as the consumer that's not a doctor is with 20. And so as the rule, I think the doctor loans are priced as low, if not lower than a similar loan that wasn't, you know, flagged as a physician loan. And, and I think you mentioned fixed and adjustable rates just, just a second ago. So are these loans typically in at a fixed rate, meaning like you get this, this rate the entire time versus is an adjustable rate. And I guess maybe for those, you may, you know, there's, there's some listening to this that have no financial background at all and may not even know what a fixed or adjustable rate is. Could you just quickly, briefly touch on what that is? And then can it kind of touch on if with physicians loans that if they're typically one versus the other? So I think every lender out there that offers physician loans offers them as an adjustable rate mortgage about half to two thirds also offer them as a fixed rate. So some of the choices you're going to have don't offer it as a fixed rate product. And part of the reason for that, I think is a lot feel that the doctor is going to take out a mortgage and it's going to be a five to seven year plan anyway. And that's actually more common than most people realize. I mean, they're buying their forever home and they won't make it the seven years before they're selling it to buy something different. But that's a whole nother story, but mm-hmm. an adjustable rate mortgage is what ARM stands for. Right? An adjustable rate means take a seven six for instance, a seven six ARM 
all the arms are typically amortized on 30 years. So a seven, six, the bank is giving you a fixed rate for the first seven years. Well, six means you're getting a new rate every six months for the last 23 years. So it's going to have a cheaper payment than the 30 year fix because the bank isn't on the hook to say, we're going to give you this rate for 30 years. We're saying, we're going to give you this rate for seven years, and then you're going to take whatever the market is. There's limitations on what that market rate can be, but it, it's definitely a less risk for the bank because they're not, you know, if they lock in a rate like they did two years ago and a 30 year fix at three, they're not still sitting on that loan seven years from now at three, they're going to move it to six or seven or whatever the market is. Right. And so that may be better for the bank, but not necessarily the lender per se. I mean, I'm sorry, not necessarily the borrower per se. For example, like if I walked in this house, it's like you just said three, go ahead, go ahead. It might be, so it depends. So I, I mean, I definitely weigh out the pros and cons because there is no one size fits all. Everybody's situation is different. But if someone comes to me and the thirty-year fixed rate is one rate, and the seven-six rate is eight, maybe a quarter point cheaper, then I'm like, why would you take the risk? But if it's a half point or I see them even three quarters of a point cheaper in today's environment, it used to be a much bigger spread than that, but. Let's just take an example of a 30 year fix and say it's five and a half. And then if you could get a seven, six arm at five, if you're not going to be in the house longer than five years anyway, and that's pretty typical of a resident. I mean, a resident, yep. they're not buying based on the attending salary. So it's probably not a house they're going to have once they triple or quadruple their income. So why not? I mean, why would you pay the bank an extra half a point in rate on something you're not going to have? By the time the rate changes anyway, go ahead and pocket that money and know that you're going to sell the house. So three main reasons I like a decimal rate. And one of them is, hey, I'm not going to own this house. By the time the rate starts to adjust, it doesn't matter what it does to that I won't have it. The second reason would be, I'm going to save running now. And if the rate gets out of control, I'm in a position I can just write a check and get rid of the loan. So it's not really a rate risk loan if you're in a position that I'm going to take the cheaper rate while it's cheap money, but if the rate goes up, I'll get rid of the loan. And then obviously the third one would be if we're in a position when I think we're in a position now that we expect rates to go down in the future. So we were at all, all time lows a year and a half ago. We're yeah. going to come up. They're trying to curb inflation. After they fix this and get things in check, I think super hard to hit the target bullseye. So they're probably going to overheat. And I think they'll have to unwind some of the damage they're doing, which if damage in one place that's, you know, helpful in the other, have to get inflation under control. There's no question. So that being raising rates, so be it. But after inflation gets in check, if, you know, they get rates to six plus and then Next year, inflation that a number they can hold steady that they're comfortable with. And I think weights will come back down anywhere from a half to the don't know that we'll get that far, but maybe one of the somewhere in that range. So yeah. that would be a third reason to take out an arm. If you're taking out a loan today and expect rates to go down in two years anyway, you're going to refinance. So if you're going to refinance anyway, why not get the cheap money today while you're waiting for an even better deal tomorrow? Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, no, yeah. Thank, thanks for explaining that. And I guess a real quick question: Is it just for houses, single family homes themselves, or can you use this 
loan, you know, for example, to buy, buy a condo or something of that sort, or is it typically just for a single family houses? Almost any of us will do single family, condo, townhouse. Those are all going to be, well, I shouldn't say all, almost everybody will do the single family and the townhouse the same. A few lenders are going to up the price for a condo, like my bank does it. And then mine specifically will actually allow it for a duplex. You can buy a whole duplex with our doctor loan too. You just can't use the rental income for the other half to qualify. So as long as you can afford the whole duplex as though you weren't getting any rental income, then we'll let, we'll let you use it for a few units. Mm, okay, yeah, that, and that's good to know. And so who should, I guess, get the position loan? Like what's the kind of ideal candidate or ideal situation, you know, should, like for example, you know, should somebody that's coming out to be in residency for three years at one place get it? Or should it be somebody that's going to be there for five years or like who should get it and who should not get it? I guess the, the two sides of, uh, of this loan. I mean, definitely anybody doesn't have money because that's the benefit of it. It doesn't require a down payment. So yeah. it's not necessarily whether you're there three or five years, are you going to buy a house? If you're going to buy a house, then, you know, rather than saving for it, because you, you do absolutely can't save money fast enough the way inflation's been going. If you were buying a $400,000 house and you wanted to save 5% down payment, that 20000 that's going to take forever on a resident salary. I mean, maybe a resident without a house or somebody else in the household couldn't afford 400 anyway. But let's just say that was the case. If you're buying a $400,000 house and you were going to say, I have to wait till I'm going to save the 5%, by the time you save $20,000, house is going to be 450 Now you have to borrow 430 So you literally can't save money fast enough. So in, in circumstances like that, for sure, that person, so resident, but also I think even attendings on their first and second, you know, after training purchases too, because now you're making enough money. Yes, you could probably accumulate money fast enough to make a difference on a down payment, but at the same time, do you want to, if the doctor loans cheap money and you've still got car loans and student loan debt and and I didn't want that some of that fairly decent rate, but the car loan, while they might be even cheaper rate than the loans, the, I call it bang for your buck, paying off a car loan is, you know, triple. So if you have a $50,000 car loan, that might be an $800 payment. But if you have $50,000 instead on your mortgage, you know, that might be 240 or $250 payment. So to me, even though you say, I've got money for a 5% debt payment, I'm going to say, wait a minute, what other debt you have? Is there a better place you can use this money in those cases? Or you also don't want to go in and buy a house and just wipe out all of your savings to where you're broke after you walk out of closing on the house. If a bank's loan to give you no money down, even though you've got an attending salary, then that might be the better choice than to take the last, 50,000 that you've saved up the last couple of years, or maybe it's equity you've gained out of your rent out after you sold it, you don't have to reinvest it. There's no tax benefit for taking your profit from one house and putting it back into another. No, mm, so okay. I think it really applies to, and then let's say you've got somebody that's 10 years out. I mean, now they got plenty of money. Maybe they could pay cash. Still might make sense to take out a mortgage because if you're borrowing money at you know thirty year fixed today and the 
low to mid five. If you're making money in the market in the pen, which not, not too many people did last year, but as a rule, then that's still potentially a better use of your resources to not put them in the house, take the doctor loan where they let you have a low down payment, no PMI loan, and take your money and make more money with it. So it's kind of one of those situations where the banks give it to the people who need it the least. That's who they want to loan money to. Like somebody that can pay cash for a house, that's our borrower. Yeah, 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 that's true. One of the other things that I wanted to ask is, do you see physicians or do you see people taking out multiple of these loans? And then do you see people doing that for rental properties or for investment properties? Like, is this a good idea to do for an investment property if you're not going to be living there? Most everybody requires to be your primary resident. However, there's nothing that says that, you know, life has changed now and you move on, you're going to go buy a different house. When you vacate that house, you can keep the house that you've got with the loan that you've got and turn it into a rental. You just can't buy it with that pretense. So I have a lot of people that, you know, use this to build a portfolio. So buy a house, live in it two years, go buy another house with somebody down, live in it two years and just keep rolling. So many of us, like my bank specifically, we're not going to do two physician loans for the same borrower at the same time. You could come back to me and sell your other house and get another new 100% loan. But if you just got a loan from me last year, I mean, you know, $600,000 no money down loan, you come back, now you want a million dollar no money down loan. <laughs> we'll do the million dollar no money down loan, but only after you pay down the 600000 loan by 20%. And it can't be, hey, the $600,000 is now worth eight hundred. That's not, you know, earned equity, I call it. So if they want a million dollar, 100% loan on the second one, they have to have actually paid down 120000 of the principal. Mm, so you get the thought. Mm, okay. A loan is great. You know, you, you know, it's good for, you know, physicians and, and everybody looking to to get a place and you don't have to pay any money down. You're just only like paying maybe like some closing fees or, you know, like fees for the title, things of that sort. So what are some tips that you have for people that are trying to get the loan and, you know, there's five different banks out there and they're not exactly sure what are some good things to necessarily look for in one bank versus another? Like what are some tips that you have for comparing different banks? Like do certain banks have better track records or, is there, you know, is there anything that, you know, in your experience, that you could, in any tips that you would have? Well, I mean, there's a, a staple list of the big players, and, you know, that would be the My Bank, BMO, Bank of America, Huntington, Truist, U.S. Bank, TD Bank, First Horizon, and Fifth Third. I think that's your big players. Most of them are regional that, you know, say, uh, and actually, I should have mentioned Key Bank, too, but they kind of backed out of the space some. But most of the players, like Fifth Third, Truist, TD, a lot of them are, you know, hey, we'll do these 20 states, or we'll do these 30 states on a few of them. Some of them do in the 12 states. U.S. Bank is nationwide. They don't offer 100% financing, but they're nationwide. BMO is nationwide, everything, but New York and Bank of America, obviously, is nationwide. But the rest of them, you know, do somewhere between 15 and 30 states. So... Right out of the gate, you don't have as many to choose from as you think based on where you're living, you know, where you're wanting to buy. But as far as trying to get, you know, the best deal on them, probably 
a, a good entry point to point out that my wife, the doctor, we wrote a book about Dr. Loan called Hippocratic House, which we give away and have a lot of the tidbits in there. But the main things when you're talking to third party fees are going to be the same no matter who you choose. So if you come to me or you come to Bank of America and you're comparing us, they say, well, Bank of America, you know, closing costs are less than yours. When we really look at it, it doesn't matter what Bank of America says or what I say for title fees. Maybe they said they were 6000 I said they were 3000 Makes mine look better, but that's not really going to be the case. If you close with the title company, let's say you pick Chicago title, they're going to charge them versus me the same. So when you're comparing the bank, there's three things you're looking at and only three things. Everything else is going to be what it's going to be, meaning... Just like taxing, taxes and death, taxes is going to be the same on the house no matter what lender you choose. So the homeowner insurance. And then the other third party fees I'm referring to, like title insurance, appraisal, credit, all that stuff's not really going to vary one lender to the next. So the three things that are important that when you're shopping are service, one being like talking to me versus them. You know, do you like who you're working with? Do you feel like they're going to know what they're doing? You're going to get the loan closed. Service could also be, are you paying my loan versus is it going to get sold bounced around 20 times, like a regular Fannie Mae loan? And I will say most of these lenders, they're not going to bounce your loan around. They probably will keep it because, again, the whole point of doing these loans is they want to earn the doctor's business and make them a lifetime client, not a one transaction. But outside of the service, there's two other things interest rate and the bank fee. So interest rates very easy to compare. I mean, call one versus the other, who's got the better rate? But the lender fee has a big difference that plays into that. So let's say you call Bank of America and they said, hey, our rate today is five and a quarter. And then you call me and I think my rate today is five and a half. Well, on quick surface, it sounds like Bank of America is a better deal until you dig a little deeper and say, what are, what are my lender fees? I'm like, well, they're $1,150, but as a purchase transaction, we're going to give you at least that much to cover it. So I had no lender. And then you go back to Bank of America and think, yeah, our rate's five and a quarter, but that costs three quarters of a point. Now, all of a sudden, you have to really dive deep, and this is probably way too adept for, uh, you know, this podcast. But if, if you were compare bank APRs, then it starts to tell a bigger story of, on a fixed rate mortgage and an APR that's really close to the interest rate means there's very low bank lender fees or discount points, the rate. But if you see a bank charging five and a quarter of 30 year fix, and then their APR is five and, you know, five eighths or something, then they've got huge lender costs. And problem with really high loan costs are, are you ever going to be there long enough? So let's say the quarter point saves you a hundred dollars a month. How many months does it take to get back eighteen thousand dollars in difference in closing costs? A long time. So you really have to look at the two. So my best advice for this would be first and foremost, you have to work with somebody you know is gonna, you know, the rate makes no difference if they don't get you to the closing table if you actually get the close. So you have to get somebody that's confident and knows what they're doing. But after that if you talk to two banks and they have different rates or different closing costs, then it's going to be hard to know which one's, you know, the better deal. The quick and easy way is 
the bank could offer you many different rates. So you come to me and ask, and I say my rate's five and a half. You say, well, Bank of America quoted me five and a quarter. That's like, okay, I can also quote you five and a quarter. Here's how much it changes my closing cost. Now you have two equal rates. Then you can just go back and look and say, well, Bank of America was this much in closing costs, and Doug was this much in closing costs. Now I can see which one was really the better deal. So you always want to get either the closing costs to be the same or the rate to be the same, and the rate's the easy one to manipulate. That If somebody's not quoting the same rate, say, hey, I got this quote. How much were your closing costs to see if I want this rate? And then it's a very easy comparison. Quickly just want to see if you get test base on that because – when I was, when I initially heard about it, I was like, oh man, I'm not going to have to pay anything. Like, oh, okay, this is great. But there are still some other fees that you may have to, uh, that you may have to play, that you may have to pay when you're closing for a property. So what are some of those like little common fees and what should realistically, should somebody, like how much, it obviously depends on the price of the home, but like realistically, how much should somebody be like, okay, well, I should at least have maybe at least a couple grand ready just because I'm going to know I, I may have to pay these fees and, I, you know, these title fees, whatever else it may be. So, you know, I guess the, the question is. Well, I mean, most banks are going to have a set fee. doesn't matter the size of the loan you take out. So size of the loan certainly going to matter. Some of the fees are tied to percentage-based variable. But the bank lender fees typically aren't. So if you came to me and you want a $300,000 loan or a $2 million loan, our bank underwriting fee is $1,150. That if you... Do a three hundred dollar loan. My bank is it because we like purchases. They're going to give you an eight hundred dollar credit, making my fees three fifty. If you're over a million dollars, we're going to give a fifteen hundred dollar credit. So we're actually paying you three hundred fifty dollars to do business with us. That's lender fees. The third party fees are the ones that add up, and the big one is always going to be title. And title is if it's not in a state that charges a state tax stamp and think of that essentially as a sales tax for buying a property, then if you don't have that, title fees are variable. It'll, you know, almost as simple as, hey, a $600,000 house, title fees are going to be double what a $300,000 house are, but that can even vary from state to state. And some state title fees are a lot more expensive than others. So again, not a one size fits all. If you just want to make give you like an example say missouri you know it's not really going to vary that much that i would say the lender fees are anywhere from nothing in my case that's for covering them for you up to twelve thirteen hundred dollars you know on the higher end anywhere from five hundred to a thousand for appraisal idle is going to make up the bulk of the rest with uh, you know some courier fees some state the the requirements like Texas has a survey requirement or some states like Oklahoma and Texas do attorney closing. So that adds up for a couple hundred bucks. But the other big one that, you know, you just can't even put a, like a price tag on closing costs because in Missouri, I would say, Hey, you're probably looking at four to $6,000 in closing costs in Florida, example, or Pennsylvania or New York, Maryland, some of those states, they have a state tax stamp that can range from a half to 2%. 
New York, New York is 2% in clothing costs right out of the gate. That's just what the state started. So you take a million dollar loan there, $20,000 before you ever get started on other fees like appraisal, lender fee, and title insurance. Whereas Missouri, you know, you have a fixed cost that's low. But something else I want to touch on that is a little bit of a um, probably misused term is closing cost. So there's two things that make up tax to close, and part of it is not closing cost. You have, on the one hand, stuff we were just talking about, appraisal, title, lender fees, closing fee, recording, stuff like that, credit report. All of that's closing costs. Then you have another thing on the other half of the equation called prepaid. Prepaid is made up of, say, a whole year of homeowner insurance and funding your escrow account with money to pay the taxes. So it's your money going into, I call it a forced saving account, to pay your future tax bill and insurance bill, and then prepaid interest. So if you closed on the second of the month, you're going to pay 29 days of interest. If you close on the 30th month, you're going to pay one day of interest. None of that is really a cost to close the loan, but it has to do at closing. So a lot of times that prepaid can add up to as much as the closing cost, so sometimes more. So you can't go to a bank and say, hey, Missouri, your closing cost is going to be five grand, and you're going to fill up the closing with five grand because you also have to pay your first year homeowner insurance. Well, that's probably right out of the gate is at least 2500 And then escrowing reserved in your escrow account, you know, that may take up another $2,500 for a few months tax of insurance reserve. And then let's say you want to close on the second of the month. Good news is your first payment isn't for 59 days, but the bad news is you're paying almost a whole extra payment at closing by paying 29 days worth of interest and funding your escrow account with an extra month of taxes and insurance. So, you know, there's no vanilla here of how much they expect to close with because it varies so much depending on what price range you're in, whether or not you're paying discount points, and what state you're closing in. Yeah, and a lot of the stuff that you just said, I wish I would have listened to this five years ago when I was buying my house because I didn't realize a lot of those things that you had to come out of pocket for. And, you know, if you're your first time buying a house, you don't necessarily know that unless you, you know, you know somebody or you've, you've you know, you did, I guess, done your research. So very, very solid points there. I hope those are listening or it took some notes there, especially if this is your first time and considering looking and buying for a house. And, and last question I had here before we kind of wrap up is you mentioned it earlier on in the podcast, which you talked about the time to closing. Does the time, you know, the amount of time that banks need to do this loan, is that shorter than like a conventional loan? Say, for example, you know, I'm, I'm about to start a fellowship in another city in a month and I need to look for a place and close in a month. Is this a loan that typically takes a long time to get done and close or is it something quicker or about the same time as a conventional loan? It's the same. The only difference okay. would be some of it will allow up to 90 days before the job starts to close. But if you wrote a contract and gave it to me today, uh, I could close loans in three weeks. You know, some banks are going to tell you they want four weeks and we get super busy. Then we're kind of hands are all, all of us, our hands are tied by appraisal timeline. So if it takes three weeks in the appraisal, then I can no longer close in three weeks. Then it's going to take four. But as a rule, you should expect to be able to close the doctor out in 30 days. Okay. 
Cool, cool, cool. That, this has been, you know, super helpful, very informative. I know I learned a lot. I'm sure our, our listeners learned a lot. Where can the people, you know, listening, listening to this podcast, get to know know you a little bit more or check out your book? Can you, you kind of just touch base on that and let them know where they can find you? Sure. Just my name, www.dougcraft.com, that's E. That will actually, in addition to giving you my email address, my phone number, also has a link to request a copy of that book. And then I do have uh, an easy number to remember, 862-DOCTOR-LOAN, the D-R-L-O-A-N-S. So if you did remember the 862, you can only find me that way, but easiest way is always dubcraft.com. Then I'll have all my contact and bill on it. And we, yeah. I'd love to give the book, but I didn't get it. It was a, kind of a, something my wife and I wanted to do, give back, because he always said, you know, doctors are trained to treat people and they aren't really trained in finance. So I kind of want to put that out there and it's not, you ask for a copy of my book, I'm not going to use it to market to you or anything. It's just, I hope it helps you. If it brings you back to me and I can help you be the one to help you with your loan, then great. But not, if you learn something from it, then I feel good about it. Well, Doug, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for being a guest. And for those that are listening, go and check out that book and I will see everybody next episode. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast, specifically our finance series episode. Uh, we're just talk about the physician's law with Doug. And again, if you want a free copy of his book, click the link in the description and we will get that over to you. And until not we, they will get it over to you. <laughs> excuse, uh, excuse my French here. They will get it over to you, not me, because I do not do that. Again, this is a podcast that is not financial advice. This is just educational podcast. Uh, so without further ado, we'll hear you all and see you all in the next episode.